our um, exposition of the life and contributions of the Meire Naim Reb Nochem the the head of our family, the first Tversky, who, if you remember from last time, was a disciple both of the Baal Shem Tov and the Baal Shem Tov's successor, the uh, Magid of Mezrich. Um, throughout the uh, the writings of the Hasidic commentaries, one will find uh, things which uh, which overlap with uh, uh, with other Hasidic commentators. But um, there there appears to be in um, in each of the the giants of uh, Hasidus, certain topics to which they uh, they seem to be more drawn than others, certain topics which they express more sharply than others. And uh, while I, I don't believe that we um, that this is the context in which or the form in which we can we can really exhaust this for any one uh, of these Hasidic greats, I would like to draw some attention to. Um, a number of instances in each case. The Meirinaim, in uh, in a variety of instances in his commentary, uh, draws attention to the um, the nature of Tera and how we have to approach Tera in order that uh, our interaction with it will be authentic and that we will be um, we will be affected by Tera appropriately. He argues that um, that Tera comes from the the root of Meira and Heira, that its function is to lead us, that uh, in order for us to be able to um, to grow from Tera, to be affected by Tera, that we have to be prepared that when we when we learn it, when we uh, approach it, that the attitude is that we are completely open, that uh, that we're um, that we're pliable, that we're re- responsive to wherever Tera will direct us, and that the very first the very first step in um, in having an authentic relationship with Tera is that we uh, we open ourselves to it in a um, in, in a very uh, genuine and, and honest way. But he goes on to say that um, that Tera doesn't doesn't work if uh, we fail to approach it this way, that is, that uh, there's uh, the attitude that somehow, um, to draw upon the uh, the words of Chazal, which he mentions, Barasi Yetzer Hara, Hashem is quoted as uh, as as saying, I created the um, the evil um, temptation, I created the Yetzer Hara. So the antidote to that is uh, is Tera. So he says, and we find many people who he says are uh, great scholars in Tera. 
Nonetheless, uh, their Yetzirah seems to be very intact. They uh, seem capable of doing some uh, some some very evil things, some uh, some uh, some very nasty things, some very wicked things. So, um, for example, he says in Parshas Yisrael, "V'hinei v'hinei rayes, anoshim He says, "And our eyes." Um, our own eyes see many people who study the Torah and, and are extremely proficient in it. And they are distant from the fear of God and from His service. And the evil inclination is completely intact. In contrast to the um, statement that our sages make in that if the Yetzirah is uh, confronts an individual, what should a person do if he finds himself uh, dealing with temptation? So it says, uh, drag the Yetzirah into the Beis Hamedrash, into the study hall, and learn Torah. If he's uh, if he's as hard as a stone, then he'll melt. And if he's um, What's the other one? Um, something else, he'll splint or whatever it is. The point is, he goes on to say, that we see that the Yitzhak is completely intact, it didn't melt and it didn't splinter. So what happened? In another instance, he says, um, It's possible, he says, for someone to be a lamdan ubaki bahalochis, that he will be a, um, a, a very adept Torah scholar to, who knows uh, things in extensively and in depth, and he's, uh, he's conversant in the halachas. But uh, there's, uh, there's something desperately wrong with him. And so, um, the Merenayim argues that we have to we have to understand how the mechanism of Torah is really intended to work and how we must address it he says uh, he quotes for example he quotes the um, statement of our sages that beterose shall rabbi meir it says in the torah scroll of rabbi meir hayakosuv kosnes er ba'alaf he has reference over here to the um, description in Genesis in Bereshis, where um, after the chait, after the sin of Adam and Chava, where they eat of the tree of knowledge, they realize that they are naked, and it says that God made for them uh, clothes of of hide of of leather. Kosnais air of skin. He made made for them. Um, uh, apparently, he he made some sort of leather clothing for them. So it says that this same pasuk, which we read in our Sefer Torah as um, raiment 
of leather, the word or being spelled, the word leather being spelled with an ayin, in the Sefer Torah of Rabbi Meir, the word or was written with an aleph, which changes the meaning dramatically. Instead of being leather, it would be uh, raiment clothes of of light, uh, clothes which which were which were luminous. So the Merinaim asks the very obvious question. Um, we know that any single letter in the Torah which is uh, incorrect renders the entire Sefer Torah invalid. It becomes puzzle. So he says, either our Torah is puzzle, because it's written with an ayin, or else Remer's Sefer Torah is, is puzzle, is invalid because it's written with an aleph. So how are we to understand the statement of our sages? So he goes on to uh, to tackle yet another very puzzling um, comment of our sages, where our sages comment and um, and say, "Halavai oisi ozvu v'teirosi shamaru," that God exclaims, "I would wish that oisi myself." They should abandon me. But as long as Vitirosi Shamalu, as long as they keep my Torah. The implication being that there is such force and such power in Torah that even if Claudius studies Torah in a way which is somehow bereft of the divine authority behind it, nonetheless the 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 glow, the radiance, the power, the force of Torah will reclaim them. It will it will influence them beneficially, and they will be restored. So that's how the generally that we understand the statement. But the Merinayim is unhappy with that. So he goes on to say as follows: that from the very beginning of creation, the uh, the earliest creation to which the Torah alludes is the creation of light. And God proclaimed, let there be light, and there was light. Now, our sages over here make a very important observation. In every other instance where there is a declaration of creation in, in the, uh, the seven days of creation, it indicates, and it was so. That's what it says. And God said, let there be, and it was so. The... The exception to this rule is the first day. And God said, let there be light. And it doesn't say, and it was so. It says, and there was light. So our sages want to know, why is this creation different than all other creations? To paraphrase what we do at the Seder. Why is the first day's creation different? So our sages respond that whereas in every other day of creation when God said let there be something that something emerged as God had intended it to emerge not so the first day the light which God sought to create upon creating it he saw that it was so powerful that an individual could 
could utilize it to transcend time, to transcend space. It was it was a light with which one could see from one end of the world to the next, from the beginning of time to the end of time, and he saw that the wicked would abuse that light. And so he was forced to conceal it for the righteous in the time to come. Therefore, in the first day of creation, when God said, let there be light, what he intended was for this this very powerful, this very this very spiritual light, which accepted no barriers. And what came out was that he had to create a different kind of light, a physical light. And so that second light is the one which is referred to by the statement, and there was light. And God said, let there be light, refers to the the more powerful Light, that which is concealed for the righteous in the time to come. And there was light, in contrast to it was so, because it wasn't so. So the it was light refers to the fact that a lesser, a far lesser light was granted to the, to the world. And so the Mary name asks, where did God hide it? The first light of creation, the powerful light. Where did God conceal it? Is it something that uh, we are destined only at uh, at the very end of time when uh, God will eradicate evil? Is that the very first opportunity that we will have to to uh, for the righteous to be able to indulge that light? So he says that's not the case. He says that that light is, in fact, present in every generation, and it is accessible. It is hidden in the letters of Torah. And if we knew how to study Torah correctly, if we approached it with a pure heart, if we approached it with, uh, with a pure intent, then we would be able to access that light which would enable us to overcome the barriers of time and space. And he says that this is what our sages meant when they uh, informed us that in the Sefer Torah, with the Torah of Rebbe Meir, That's his quote. In the Torah of Rabbi Meir, there was written that the word or, which otherwise is in our all of our Sefer Torah is written with an ayin, that in his Sefer Torah, it it wasn't written with an ayin meaning leather, but with an aleph meaning light. He says that Rabbi Meir's capacity to inspire. Rameer's capacity to to teach in the the most profound and the most transforming way was such that he illuminated the the hearts and the minds of his disciples such that when they looked at all of the letters of Torah they were introduced 
to the light behind the letters, to the Eir HaGanus, to the concealed and luminous presence of God's wisdom. And he says that's the meaning that with his Torah, when they looked, in other words, in his Sefer Torah, if you looked at the letters in his scroll, it said, Kusnas or with an ayin. But when you looked at the letters of his Torah, what you saw was what was behind the letters. You you saw that uh, there really was there were there were oceans of wisdom. There was an infinite light behind them. And so he taught them how to access that oragonus. And so he goes on to say that whereas uh, there are so many people who study the Torah and they study it and they are full of, um, of a great deal of information. They know the halachas. So he said, but the gates of wisdom are not open to them because all they see is letters. And they never get to the light behind them. And he says, therefore, that we are to understand the exclamation in the following way. Halavai Aisi, instead of meaning God saying, the word Aisi meaning myself, he said Aisi means letters. The word the, the, the word for a letter is Ais. So he says, Halavai Aisi Azu, I would wish that they could get beyond the letters. Viterasi and that which I wish to show them, that which I really wish to teach them, Shamaru, that they would go into that that Ayir Haganus, because that would lead them in the direction where the uh, the Almighty would would wish them to go, and so the uh, one of the 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 favorite topics of um, of the Meiri Naim is this this uh, repetitive appeal that when people approach Taira, that they have to approach it with a yearning and longing to touch the divine Ratzin, to touch the divine will, which is inherent in each letter and each Pasuk of the Teira, so that they can, in some, in some measure, that they can embrace HaKadosh Baruch Hu through the, the letters of the Teira. That would be one theme that students of Chassidus would be likely to find uh, many times in uh, the Me'er Naim and, um, and written very sharply. A second, uh, a second topic, which, um, which it seems to me that one finds with uh, greater frequency in the writings of the Me'er Naim is a concept which is uh, is a um, centers on 
a fall from uh, from an achievement in Ruchnius. And he talks about talks about the fact that a person is um, is um, a, a growing, aspiring um, servant of the Almighty, and um, he he wishes to take some steps forward, he wishes to go to to new achievements, to new sensitivities, um, perhaps. Uh, he is concerned about uh, the fact that um, there is too much appetite involved in in the uh, the realm of his um, his day to day activities, the way in, the way in which um, he eats and sleeps. That there's that uh, he he would like to he would like to uh, be able to rise above those appetites, so that there would, that there would be more of a of a uh, sense of kedusha, of holiness um, involved with uh, with those activities. Perhaps it's in uh, relationships with uh, with other people. He would want to be stronger, want to be more resistant, perhaps more resistant to the kinds of speech that um, that flow between people. He wants to be more resistant to Lashon Hara, he wants to be more resistant to Dvarim Betelim, things which are just idle chatter, which have no, no particular purpose other than just wasting time. Um, in, in whatever in whatever expression of life. An individual wants to take a step upwards. And one discovers that in that aspiration, that they begin to work at it, and it seems as though they they can't make it. It's just as though they've kind of hit a brick wall. They're all fired up. Um, they've, they've learned about it. They've... Um, They've read anecdotes or heard stories about about great tzaddikim who have in fact occupied that that kind of consistency or that level of of zehirus, that level of of, um, of caution and attention. Um, and uh, and and they desperately want to get there, but there's a it seems that uh, every time that they make a move, that the uh, they're frustrated, that they um, that they're unable to move forward. Um, the manner in which he describes it is even more dramatic. He says that it seems that this aspirant, who who moments ago was fired up to attack a new a new plateau a new um, I'm not connected what Maor Enaim that's the name of the book Maor Enaim is the is the we're talking about Reb Nochem who is the author of this sefer called Me'orinaim, 
and, uh, and, and and many people don't refer to him as Rav Nacham Chernobyl, they will refer to him as the Meir Enayim. They will refer to him as many, as a great many other. other, other. <laughs> so he, the, the Meir Enayim describes this in even more dramatic terms. It's not only that he hits a barrier, it's that somehow it's almost as though the, his breath has been taken away. He finds that um, that he's listless. He finds that... Um, that all of his, his former excitement about wanting to climb mountains is gone. He finds that uh, there's a certain lethargy, a certain, uh, almost um, uh, a certain despair. That it kind of, you know, uh, here I was, I was, I was excited, I was, I was filled with energy, I, I, I wanted to achieve so much, and I don't care anymore. I just don't seem to have, I don't have the, the excitement and the sense of adventure anymore, and I don't want to accomplish, and I just don't, you know. It's, so he really speaks about the fact that the, that, um, the individual is, is overcome by a, a, an, an emptiness. That he's robbed of all of his strength. It seems that he can't he can't function by any of the um, the the qualities and the attributes which were former very much a part of his being. So the the Meiranaim says that we have to understand that that this is. A regular function in the lives of those people who are earnest seekers in um, aspiring and growing. That before every step upwards, there is this complete and dramatic loss of of all of the the excitement, uh, the verve, the um, uh, the the drive which might ordinarily carry one on the basis of all of one's previous achievements and accomplishments to the next step up. That we should somehow have the right to claim this next step as a logical step, a progression from where we are. We should just be able to, to move up. Um, in, in, uh, in, in school, you uh, you go from second grade to third grade. You learn all of the skills, all of the information that you need to know in second grade. You can legitimately take a a um, a very carefully metered and and logically defensible step forward. You're now on a higher level, so you can go into the third grade. You're older, and uh, and, and and you have this this information. You can you can do it naturally. But if if suddenly someone were to take away everything that you've achieved between kindergarten and, and, and second grade, and you have to step into third grade without having any of the things that you've learned, it would be an impossible task. But he's suggesting that in the spiritual realm, that something of this is what is taking place. That a person is called upon to move into this next, this next level of spirituality without the the energy, without the um, 
the abilities that he has developed over a lifetime. And that that repeats itself each time. How long does that feeling last? As long as you allow it to. Some people allow it to last forever. He says that some people are dissuaded. He said that many people are are claimed they're, that they're that they're swallowed by this despair and by this this um, entropy, by this this uh, overwhelming sense of uh, I can't I can't go anywhere and I just don't seem to to care anymore. He says a lot of people get lost there. He calls it, in one instance, he calls it a form of death. He's, he, in, in, in one of his commentaries, he explains a pasuk where the pasuk talks about about um, a person um, who uh, becomes tummy mace, becomes compromised by death. So. Maybe I'll come back to it and tell you how, show you how he does that. The point here is, is that um, the Meirenayim describes this uh, this paradigm as being the paradigm of of authentic spiritual growth. That's the that's the way it has to work. Uh, he says that it follows the 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 basic dynamic of that first there's night and then there's day that you don't go from 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 light to light from day to day you don't go from from morning to morning you go from darkness to morning, you go from or darkness to light. You go from 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 night to day, and that in order to be able to go to light, you're going to have to go through this valley, this this shadow of death. Um, and one in 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 I remember in one instance that. I understood him to be saying the following thing, although he himself makes allusions to two other concepts, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to um, to um, explain them as he explains them. Um, the manner in which I understood this, perhaps it was it was triggered by by something that he said, is that. When we speak about spirituality, by definition we are talking about something which is non-corporeal, which is not subject to, or which doesn't follow physical rules. It doesn't follow um, um, the, the rules of, a, of a, a world which is a materialistic world. Um, in a world which is a physical world where uh, this, there's a very lawful and um, and a very um, uh, logical, progressive, sequential uh, discipline that uh, that governs all things. Uh, second grade follows first grade. Third grade follows second grade. Every achievement is built upon the next. You you step. Um, 
uh, fairly effortlessly from, from one level into the next because you build upon the foundations that you've already claimed. But in the spiritual world, the spiritual world by definition is something that that doesn't belong in, in our conventional frame of reference. Um, it's, uh, it, it transcends the, the, all of these, these lawful relationships. Uh, how can someone who is in a physical body, who lives by all of the, the physical um, restraints which govern everything that we do, how do we, how do we access... These um, these spiritual realms, these these uh, achievements in in a world which is essentially a world of the infinite. How do we get there? What he suggests is is that the only way in which we can get there is if we are willing to destroy our boundaries in pursuit of that which is boundless. In other words, this concept called Mesiris Nefesh, the, the, the concept of someone who loves something, who yearns for something, who wants something so much that he refuses to accept any restraints. Logically, I, am, I, I feel eviscerated. I feel I have no energy. I, I can't move forward. I feel paralyzed. Um, uh, I feel unable. I feel inadequate. I can't do it. But I want it so much. I yearn for it so much that I, I, I refuse to accept those constraints. And I move forward and push against all of these inadequacies and all of the things that imprison me and bind me with this, this inner, this inner uh, compelling drive which is a product of my yearning and my choice, which says, I'm, I don't care. I'm going to continue to, to give everything I can. I'll, I, I, if it means that I don't eat, that I don't sleep, that I have to give up uh, worldly acquisitions, that I have to um, sacrifice things that, that I find entertaining and fun, whatever. But this is the most important. It's only when we have focused with such with such force of concentration, when it's only when we have given ourselves over to this, to this um, level that we wish to be at, with such self-sacrifice that we destroy these boundaries of of limitation. And when the Almighty sees that we want it that badly, then the logic is when you. You break your own boundaries, I can give you that which has no boundaries. When you destroy the, the normal constraints because of this profound yearning, at that point, uh, the, uh, the spiritual has a, um, a kindred, it has a, a, um, a, an, a legitimate... Uh, bond with uh, with the individual who who acted in a non-physical in a non um, restrained fashion. But the Meir uh, himself speaks of these other these other two concepts. One is the necessity 
to um, experience darkness before one can experience light and that um, there can be there can be no light unless we are willing to tolerate the darkness and move through it perhaps that was the uh, what what inspired the the way in which I understood the uh, the Meirinayim. and the second is something which he explains in a in a, in a very interesting way. Uh, there is a concept in Chassidus there's a, which um, describes everything that comes into a person's um, sphere of activity as relevant to his neshama. So it's not only, for example, that uh, it's bashert that uh, we marry whom we marry. In other words, we, you know, the, the Almighty proclaims 40 days before the formation of the of the child so and so will marry so and so so we understand that's bashert that's declared by heaven decreed by heaven um, it's infinitely more than that all of the the objects which come into our lives uh, if a person is rich, if a person is poor, the the particular the particular acquisitions, the particular inheritances, the particular gifts, whatever it is, somehow that flows through our lives, even the inanimate objects, all carry sparks, which belong to our neshama. These are all um, the the tools by which our um, our souls are destined to grow. We, if we inter- interact with all of these, 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 um, these different objects that come through our lives, and we do so in in a manner which reflects the divine wisdom as incorporated in Torah, then every time we do something with whatever we have, that uh, that makes it an instrument of spirituality we liberate these divine sparks that are related to our neshama. So that, uh, that, that people are, are born with and go through lives with all kinds of attachments that have their name on them. For example, in, in this week's Parsha, one of the things in Parsha Tzvayishlach, we find that, that Yaakov Avinu ends up alone after having transported all of his belongings, his family, and, um, to the other, to the other side of the river, and he comes back all alone. He comes back, and it's at that point where that he comes back that he is confronted by the heavenly uh, delegate of uh, the Sar um, Shalesov, uh, the uh, personification of evil, who struggles with with Yaakov all night. There's this wrestling match. And when the angel sees that he cannot prevail, that's finally when he gives up and where he he confers this name Yisrael upon Yaakov. So our sages ask the question, what prompted Yaakov to go back over the go back over the river to end up all alone? Well 
why didn't he just stay with his family? I mean, he transported them. But why did he come back? So they say that he remembered that he left some small jars, some little jugs. He came back to recover those pachim ketani. And apparently, this was such a significant act that although the Sar Shalesov was never drawn to challenge Yaakov before, despite the fact that Yaakov until now had, had accomplished great things in, in the spiritual world, but this was the point at which he knew he had to have it out with Yaakov, because if he didn't have it out with Yaakov, all was lost. And he ends up confronting Yaakov in this epic battle. Well, what was there? What, what was so significant about the fact that Yaakov Avinu came back for these, these little jars that made the Sar Shalesov, this heavenly foe, so, uh, so desperate that he knew that, uh, that it was either now or never? So, the Chesid Shesvom explain it in the, with reference to the fact that when we come into this world, that we are, are born with a whole host of these divine sparks, all of which are um, connected to us. They are part of what our life's work must be. We must liberate these sparks by using them in the manner in which the Almighty would wish us to. And, and when we have done so, then um, we have completed our work. And that's, that's the work of every, of every Jew. It's the work of every divine spirit, uh, which we call the soul. So he says that Yaakov Avinu, when he recalled the fact that he had left some small jugs behind, could have said the following. Big deal. So they're a couple of small jars. I can get along without them. But that would have suggested that those small jars were had come into his life by happenstance. That they had no significance and they had no meaning. And Yaakov understood that there is no such thing as happenstance, but that there was a providence which gave significance and meaning to everything in our lives. And if the Almighty had somehow brought, by whichever means, brought these little jugs into part of his the possessions of his life, it meant that there was a there was a reason for them being there, that there was a there was a purpose that he had to discharge through these the use of these these jars in sanctity. And so when he recognized the significance of of these little jars and the fact that they were an expression of Hashgacha and that they were an extension of the sparks of his own soul, that a human being is, is a serious uh, entity, that there's that there's very serious work to do and it's manifest in, in ways large and small, he came back for those little jugs. And, and when, when the Sar Shalesov, when the force of evil saw the, the extent to which this Jewish nation was going to be dedicated 
to the concept of Hashgach Protius, to the concept of divine providence, to the fact that there are no accidents, to the understanding that we must use everything in our lives in a sacred way, that's the point at which he knew that uh, he has to confront Yaakov Avinu and try to best him in battle, because if he would not, then uh, there would be no standing, there would be no place for evil left in the world. Now, commensurate is a corollary to the same concept. There is um, an, an even... Um, an, an, an even more um, uh, a, a more serious um, a, a deeper uh, level of connection which needs needed to be confronted or which needs to be confronted and that is not only are, do we come into life with uh, with certain relationships that are destined to happen and certain certain objects which we, we need to work with and certain situations which we have to move through. But that there are nishamais. That there, that there, that there are souls which are connected to us. Now, we generally think of the souls that are connected to us are children. That we are responsible for these nishamas. We are responsible for the well-being of our children. We have to teach them. We have to encourage them. We have to support them. We have to direct them. Um, the Sivre Chesidus indicate that, that's, that there are many souls which are unseen, uh, which for reasons that go back to the very creation of the world... Uh, have been <coughs> consigned to our care. These may be individuals who lived centuries ago, whose lives were very pedestrian, whose lives were uh, perhaps such that they uh, that they were wanting in a great many significant ways, and um, and they have. There is a very legitimate relationship, a very legitimate connection between ourselves and these souls. And that they wait for us to be able to elevate them. One of the ways in which uh, these these neshamas are um, are elevated is that when we prepare to move to a higher level of avoda, that uh, that the Almighty strips us of our of our strength. The the uh, parable which is given is that sometimes if you uh, if you want to find a, a diamond, uh, you, you have to dig for it in the dirt. You have to go down into the bowels of the earth to excavate it. And that what happens is that here is a soul, a soul that is burning with, uh, with a, a spiritual fervor, that is, about, that is about to move into a new realm. 
before it's going to move into that realm, the Almighty summons it down into a, in, to some extent into an abyss, an abyss of darkness, an abyss of despair, an abyss where there's no energy, an abyss where there's there's feelings of inadequacy, of, uh, of uh, I can't seem to, to to get my my life into into motion, and that in this abyss, at that level that we find ourselves, are these these nishamas. There are these souls who lived at that level. They lived at this very colorless, this very, this very um, moribund way of life. And that only when we enter this this abyss and we strengthen ourselves on our faith and on our determination to, to move forward, can we carry these nishamas with us? So that he speaks of this this uh, this fall as a necessary component to for us to um, collect, as it were, these these neshamas that find themselves in these dark places. So that as we ourselves occupy these places and emerge from them, that. Um, that they, we escort them to the level that we move into, and as such, the, there is this this concept of of, um, of fulfilling our work by um, by redeeming these these souls. So that's that's a, a concept that he has about the necessis, the necessity for for this fall. Um, in um, Parshas Emor, he translates the following verse. This is about, you may remember, the, the laws of the coin is not, uh, not to come in contact with death. So he takes this verse and, and transforms this verse into a, a, a string of symbols. Which means to his unmarried literally his his virgin sister who has not been to a, a man which was not unto a man on her behalf he uh, should become tummy now the literal meaning of that is that if there is a coin and she is not yet married. Not married. Yeah, there's a coin, and he has a sister who is not yet married. Whereas ordinarily a coin is restricted from coming in contact with death. There are exceptions. A coin is has a mitzvah to be metame himself. In the case of his parents, one of his siblings, <coughs> his uh, his own spouse, and. Um, God forbid, and, um, his children. So those are the exceptions to the rule. Otherwise, unless it's a mace mitzvah, someone <coughs> who's found in a place where there is no one else to concern themselves with his burial, that uh, that would be the exception that a coin would, would allow to become tummy mace. So the, the law reads that if he has a sister, and she's a married sister, 
then there too he's not permitted to um, to come in contact with death. However, if he has a sister who is not yet married, he is permitted to. That's the that's the pasuk, or, the, or it's a mitzvah. So he says, achaisa, and the, the, the word achaisa, meaning a sister, is a word which, uh, if um, you look for it elsewhere in scriptures, you find the pasuk, emeir lachachma achaisiat, say to wisdom, you are my sister, which is an exhortation that a person should pursue wisdom. So the word achaisai, sister, by virtue of that verse, becomes synonymous with wisdom. So he says, absula. This virgin sister is wisdom, which was leihaisalish. It it's it's a level that this person aspires to claim, but he has never yet made it his own. So for that. To, to be able to achieve that to be able to accept that as yet unclaimed level of, of wisdom for that purpose for that purpose he's going to find himself compromised by death he's going to find himself in this in this deep chasm of darkness where he's going to feel like all the all the lights went out and um, as as he says it, um, he will find himself removed from every aspect of of sanctity. He finds himself having fallen from Kedusha into a place of Tumah. But the righteous person redoubles his efforts, he strengthens himself, and then he, uh, he can reach higher levels than ever before. As we have explained, and then he will go out of darkness into an even greater light. So that's, the, uh, that's another very popular theme and a, and a very important theme. You know, it's not the, the the particular interpretation of here is not important. What is important is that is that the basic mechanism you know, is one that we recognize, because we frequently, not frequently, but uh, um, some people will, will consider it too frequently, and some people may not be terribly familiar with it. But there is this phenomenon where we're excited about 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 growing spiritually, about. Um, perhaps adopting new things into our life. And then it seems that we kind of like lost it. It seems that um, that all of our enthusiasm is gone. It seems that uh, that there are so many different things happening in our lives which, which, which are barriers, that it seems that we're, wherever we turn we're frustrated. It's kind of like nothing is important anymore. And we, there were, it, it used to be that we would look forward to to every day with excitement and, and and doing things that we hadn't that we hadn't done before. Then all of a sudden, now yeah, it's kind of like all the all the air was let out of the balloon of life, and it just where we find ourselves walking around under a, a black cloud. Now that's a very familiar phenomenon to a lot of people, 
And I think it's especially familiar to people who genuinely aspire to turn their lives into something which is challenging and, and, and uh, in which they're 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 always they're always moving to 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 pioneer, you know, to break through their old frontiers. And uh, the Meirinayim tells us that this is this is the the this is the paradigm for growth. This is the way it happens. And if we recognize that this is the paradigm for growth, we will no longer allow ourselves to be to be imprisoned by it. We won't allow this to become a dungeon. We will will do whatever is necessary to force the issue. We'll will will marshal the strength that we need, and we'll break through these these walls, and and we'll get where we need to go. But if we don't recognize it, we'll say the world is closed in on us, the Almighty, nobody loves us, the Almighty doesn't want our service, forget it, and, and we give up. So it's a, it's a, this um, concept is a very important concept. Is it enough for the person to say that I'll just wait out the storm and that it'll pass? Or does the person have to go out and conquer it? The Miranayim suggests that you have to, you, you have to insist on, um, on moving ahead. That if you allow yourself to wait, the darkness will get thicker, the the inertia will become stronger. You'll, you'll become more and, and more fixed, more and more paralyzed by um, by inaction. So in, he he, uh, he seems uh, very intent upon the fact that this is a challenge that you have to you have to go after. If you allow yourself to be intimidated by it, then you'll lose it. Um, a, a third very popular theme with uh, with the Miranaim is a concept of Halois Hamidus, which I referred to when we were discussing the foundations of Hasidus. But uh, I'd like to to talk about it briefly here. Um, the Miranaim wants us to understand. That the Almighty is constantly sending us different signals, and if we understand those signals and we interpret them correctly, we will then know what to plug into. Um, he uses a, a um, an example in one case. The example is that someone has a very fragile um, uh, artistic something, a very fragile item that needs to be transported over a great distance, over a desert and uh, and sea. And of course, when you travel over over a sea and over a desert and over mountains and and different kinds of terrain, there's always danger that it's going to fall, that it's going to be very bumpy and turbulent, and something is going to to happen. So you take this very fragile, this very magnificent, whether it's a gem or whether whatever it is, and you pack it up so that uh, it, the item itself might be relatively small, but in order to protect it, so you put in all kinds of, of stuff around, all kinds of cotton and all kinds of cloth and all kinds of, what do you call those little styrofoam things and whatever. You put in all kinds of stuff. So it may be, by the time you're finished, depending, again, on its great value and how fragile it is, how, how delicate, how sensitive it is, you may end up with some humongous container. 
a container which is full of things which are essentially worthless, with the exception of that which it holds and which it protects in its in its center. That is priceless. So he says that uh, when the Almighty created the world, that there he created the world with midas, created the world with literally with measures, but attributes. There's a and there are elements, there are worlds, spheres, supernal, um, supernal sources of of great preciousness. There is an oilam ahava. There is a, a world of love. There is an oilam hayira, a world of fear. What kind of fear? Referring to the the kind of awe and reverence that one has in the presence of the master of the world, when one recognizes the the grandeur of of the divine. There is there is fear and trembling, there is awe. So there are elements, there are, there are these worlds which which uh, there there's a world of great of, of, of beauty. There's a world of Netzach, there's a world of of of, uh, of uh, conquest. Now, these are um, extremely powerful sources, forces of energy. And um, the Almighty would like us to be able to access them. The Almighty wants us to be able to enter this world of love, to enter this world of, of, of awe, to enter this world of conquest or the world of beauty and to use these things in ways which will which will enable us to 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 soar to 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 be elevated to to uh, to come to come close to him if we have the the requisite love if we have the requisite the requisite awe if we have the requisite um Relationship with beauty, then our relationship with Hakadosh Baruch Hu can be a very intimate one. But what do you do when man is busy uh, plodding around the earth with his feet of clay, and his uh, he's he's got these very demanding um, kinds of of uh, appetites, and and here he's. Here he's got he's got to earn a living, and here he's got to, he's, here he's cold, and here he's hot, and here he's um, uh, he's hungry, and here he's thirsty. I mean, there's, all, I mean, that would, where there's a thousand and one things that that are all part of our lives. So, how do we, how does God get man's attention? So he says that what God does is he sends us a package, and the inside of which is this is this this priceless delicate, very fragile work of art. This kernel, the spark of of something truly sublime. But you can't send something which is of such great delicacy over this great distance of creation into a very physical world unless it somehow it, it takes a form which will allow it 
to not to be a stranger in this world. So he says that, for example, that when an individual is confronted by uh, something that strikes fear in his heart, he's walking and it's a rainy day and all of a sudden there is a, a flash of lightning and there is a peal of thunder that surrounds him and shakes him to the, to the core. There's, a, there's an event here. Uh, there's a, a, a dog runs out or a whatever, something runs out and, and, and throws a, a, a fright into him. He says, this is this, this great box, this great container on the inside of which is this, this marvelous, this, most, this exquisite, divine um, spark, which comes from the, the, the world of awe the supernal world of awe. The Almighty is trying to say, hey, I want you to look over here. He's trying to get our attention. So how does he get our attention to look at the world of awe? He sends something which which, which triggers that kind of feeling with him. And he says, if the individual would say to himself, wait a minute, I don't want to get distracted by this. Rather than my fixating on this thing which is in this big container, in other words, imagine if somebody received this big box and said, oh, what a wonderful box. Look at all of the shmatas here. Look at all of the styrofoam. Isn't this terrific? I am one of the biggest owners of styrofoam in the world. I think I'm going to start collecting big boxes. I'll make a museum for my styrofoam. Whatever. I mean, if somebody were to say that kind of a thing. Here, too, if the individual mistakenly becomes becomes preoccupied with the shipping materials and doesn't say to himself, what's behind all of this? What's, what drives this, this experience, this happening of fear? Or, another example, a person suddenly finds himself drawn into a situation in which there is a temptation, a, a, a love for something. It may be food. It may be a, uh, it may be a, a sexual attraction. Um, drawn to a, 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 a handsome man, a beautiful woman, whatever. And he says to himself, um, "Okay, I, I'm. You know, I, I, this is something that I desire." And, and he becomes completely preoccupied with the desire. This is an individual who is focusing on the container, on the styrofoam, when in reality, in the most sublime precincts of creation, this experience draws its, its energy from the world of love. And it's as though the Almighty were saying to him, Hey, down there, there is a higher love. There is a greater love. There is a greater, a greater awe. There's a greater fear, which, if you access it, will open up a new, a new world for you, a new experience for you. So he says that all of these things that go through our lives, which we could deal with in the very limited way in which we discover them, in which we interact with them are really messages from above saying don't get involved 
Well, you, know, you, you seem to be very busy with how beautiful this car is going to be, how beautiful your furniture is going to be, how beautiful uh, this uh, your silver is going to be, how beautiful your person is going to be, how beautiful your clothes are going to be. If you're involved with beauty, if that seems to be driving you right now, stop and think about the fact that there is a world of beauty. And that beauty is something which carries us into the consideration of the, the, the symmetry of the, everything divine. To think about, to think about the Eilam Hatifaris. Uh, to use, use beauty in ways which will enable us to, to, to concentrate that beauty and focus that beauty on the things in our lives which relate to our service of the Almighty. So instead of being busy with, of, of investing all of our, our um, efforts in, um, in these, these limited forms of beauty, we're busy turning them to trying to make our mitzvahs beautiful and to trying to turn every, every which way in which we express ourselves, the words that we use and the, 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 every tool that, that becomes a, a spiritual tool to, to be one in which we, uh, we bring beauty to those things. Or, for example... Um, Netzach. Um, we're we're in a competitive thing, and we want who, we're going to win. We're going to win. It may be, and maybe com- we're competitive with our spouse. It may be competitive in the business world. It may be competitive in the educational realm. Wherever it is, we find ourselves driven. We have to. We have to prevail. We have to win. Well, that's a when when we sense that that's what's driving us, we stop. According to the to the Meirinaim, he says we said ourselves. Now, where does that come from? Where does that? What's that triggered by? That comes from the supernal world of Netzach. There are ways for us to use that in a spiritually relevant, spiritually relevant way. We need to overcome the evil within ourselves. We need to. We instead of being competitive with trying to prove the fact that we can play better basketball or that we can get better marks, then we need to be be able to demonstrate the fact that we can overcome our inclinations to be petty, our inclinations to be um, uh, to be mean, our inclinations to, to anger, whatever. I mean, the kinds of things which we're, we're constantly struggling with. That's where we need to use Netzach. We need, to, we, we need to use Netzach in ways which will carry us into a spiritual, spiritual realm. And if we find ourselves drawn by temptation and appetites, then these are signals where the Almighty is saying there's a far greater, a far deeper, a far more sublime love, which, which, which is um, infinitely, um, infinitely more pleasurable, infinitely, infinitely more meaningful than these, these moribund forms of love. And so he has, a, a, time and again, he addresses the concept of halois hamidas, about the fact that when we find ourselves in any one of the manifestations of the different attributes of creation, and we find and we find them in our daily lives, in the in the in the very commonplace ways in which we find them, that we should recognize in them the the um, uh, reflections of a of a higher source where the Almighty is really trying to draw our attention. He's, he's calling out to us. He's clapping as Kav he's clapping his hands and saying, pay attention. 
um, there's a there's a greater experience here for you. Does it take a certain degree of sensitivity or sophistication? Okay. So we learn about them and we try and we struggle with it and uh, at first uh, 99 times out of 100 you won't be able to do it but one time out of 100 we'll, we'll kind of focus on it and we'll... I mean, he, in one case he, he, he actually makes an assurance. He said if you're confronted by some earthly fear even he seems to imply even if, like, if, if someone were to find themselves in a situation where they're confronted by someone who's, who's threatening to, to pound them to the ground if a person could divorce themselves from the what's taking place in the very limited sense and and turn it to its to its higher source he could completely interrupt the the, the flow of events because its purpose would have been served and instead of locking into the the fear experience and allowing it in fact to be carried out in some act of violence if they could Access the spiritual fear. Would um, the individual would would huh? <laughs> <laughs> message in this thing falling down? Oh, something to, something to do with the fact that I'm a klutz. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but um, oh, the whole there's the whole concept is one of nephila. All kinds of the one where something fell from on high. <laughs> so, he, um, he's, uh, he, he says this with, with, uh, with great certitude. It, 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 it reads almost like a guarantee. If you can divorce yourself from what's happening and lock into the higher experience, you immediately shut off the, the lower experience. The lower experience well, cannot proceed any further. So these are some of the the, uh, the themes which which we, one is likely to find in the Meirinaim, and uh, in all of them, it's it's very obvious that the Meirinaim is was calling us to uh, to live a much richer spiritual life by attending to the possibilities in our lives which uh, which offer us opportunities to enter a spiritual world.